Welcome to the South Fellowship Church podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, officially, friends. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you. If you're visiting, special welcome to you and just praying for you as you figure out whether this is a community that you want to land in. We've been in a series for the last few weeks around mental health and and how we follow Jesus well in the midst of that. Uh, It's been great to hear so many stories of just how, for some of you, you're in those kind of spaces and this has just helped lead you gently, hopefully through some of those challenges. If you weren't here last week, our friend Kevin Butcher came and he brought the last part of that series and he, I believe the phrase is brought it. He, he just came and he just, it was wonderful. It was challenging. Go back and listen to it because there's just a ton of wisdom there that I just, I just took a load uh, from. And, and now we move back into our series on the Sermon on the Mount, which, which is gonna be different. It's, it's gonna be challenging because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is challenging. And so for the next season, up through to Easter, we're going to be in chapter six. Uh, we're going to use that series throughout Lent. There'll be some other Lenten practices in the midst of that as we approach Easter. As you prepare your heart for those challenges, a little reminder, you get out of Easter what you put into Lent. It's this process of contemplation, of feeling some stuff that may be uncomfortable as we approach that time. But, but right now, we have some work to do in chapter six to get us there. The wisest words I ever heard on the subject of money came from a TV character around 25 years ago. These were the words. Oh yes, I'm rich, but I trade it all for a little more. I'm rich, but I trade it all for a little more. Those words were spoken by Montgomery Burns, the resident billionaire of the TV show, The Simpsons. Now, now you may say, that, well, hold on a second, I'm not rich. And, and we can go with you for a second on that. You may not be rich by modern American terms. The, the, the average standard across the board, it seems today, is that you need about $750,000 in assets to be classed as rich. And you need around $2.2 million in assets to be classed as wealthy. If that's you, could you just raise your hand? No, don't raise your hand. I'm joking entirely. We may not be classed mostly amongst the rich and the wealthy in this room, but by the world standards, the wider world, actually many of us in this room would be classed amongst the rich. If you have money in a bank account, you are classed in the top 20% of richest people on earth. If you own a home outright, that makes you unusual. There are all sorts of ways that we might class ourselves amongst those who could be considered rich. And yet, even in the midst of that, Montgomery Burns brings us some real wisdom, right? Some years ago, Donald Trump was asked, how much more would you need to have enough? And he said about 10% more than I have now. Someone went and asked the same question to a man who collects cans on Smoky Mountain, a rubbish dump outside of Manila. How much would you need to have enough? And he said about 10% more. 
How many of you, if you were honest, would say right now, I could use about 10% more? It's actually surprisingly true. When I look back at my life, I look at the early years when my wife and I lived on $18,000 between us in England when we were first married, and and I remember thinking, oh man, if if we had 10% more, 100% more, but 10% more, (laughs) that, that, that would feel good. I remember coming to America and working as a youth pastor in in an expensive community thinking, oh man, if I had 10% more, that would be good. And now I might say something like, if I had 10% more, that would be good. It seems that wherever you are in the spectrum around the subject of money, which Jesus will address in today's passage, you might say, I could do with a little bit more. Most people, it seems, want to get a little bit more more. And then there's another aspect to that, the the, the tension to that, the challenge to that. Most people, especially people that have chosen to follow Jesus, would also articulate this. I would like to give a little more. Wish I had more space to be generous. Followers of Jesus are some of the most generous people in the country. They give much more than people that don't have a faith, it seems, just statistically. And so maybe there's a truth to both of those statements. I really feel that need and I, and I really feel that longing, that pull. There's this moment that every time a local charity comes and says, we could use your support, there's something in us that says, I, I'd love to be able to do that. I, I just don't feel equipped to do it. There's something inside us when we drive past a person on the street, say, I'd love to be able to give something or perhaps even I'm not sure if I should. The, the whole subject is complicated, both in terms of our needs and our desire to give more. And yet, and yet, the subject of money, one, it, it can feel awkward at times, although, think about it, is there a day that goes by where you don't talk about finances? Probably not. It, it can feel slightly awkward, and it has a way of getting to our heart, right? Because that 10% that we talk about quickly becomes another 10%. And another 10% as our life expands to meet the amount of resources that we have unless we're very intentional about it. The, the famous Catholic priest and then Protestant founder Martin Luther said that every follower of Jesus experiences three conversions. There's the conversion of the heart, which is followed by the conversion of the head, which is followed finally by the conversion of the wallet the conversion of the wallet, where finally we we make this transition where it's no longer our wallet that holds the keys to our heart, but it's now our heart that holds the keys to our wallet. Let me say that again. It's no longer the wallet that holds the keys to our heart. It's the heart that holds the keys to our wallet. Of course, he didn't actually say wallet because they didn't exist then. He said purse or something much more 15th century. Today, Jesus will address, he will come for our stuff. He will ask of us. He will actually use assumptive words. He will, he will say things like, when you give, when you give. Not, as we'll see, to an institution, not to an organization. That's not what this passage is about, although it may well be relevant. Today, he'll talk about how we as people choose to care for the poor that are around us. But before we get there, I need, I need to transition us from last Sermon on the Mount series to this one, and I left you with some homework to work on over the Christmas period. Hopefully you took it to heart, you remembered it. Uh, It was this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
that's Jesus' word to you. Just go away. Just get that fixed and everything will be fine. Be perfect is this weird transitional verse between two parts of the Sermon on the Mount. It's hard to say which part it attaches to the most. And it's a complicated word. Complicated because it's very easy for us as as people in the 21st century to hear perfect and move straight to perfectionism. Go, Go away and try really hard to do every little detail right. Be flawless in everything. When you see a piece, of, uh, a piece of litter, always pick it up. When you walk your dog and it poops somewhere, make sure that you bag it and ditch it. That's actually really good advice. You should definitely do that. But it's really easy to go to this word perfect and then move it to the term perfectionism, which isn't really what Jesus is talking about in actual fact. The, the word there is this really interesting Greek word. It's, it's this word, Telios. So if you were to transliterate, you would say, be telios, therefore, as your heavenly father is telios. Elsewhere, it's not translated perfect. It looks more like this. This is James chapter one, and it's used there. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. There, telios is mature. In the New Revised Standard Version, they actually switch the couplet round and and let endurance complete its work so that you may be complete. Complete, mature is some of that language and whole, lacking in nothing. That's this picture of telios. It invites you into the space where God is. He is complete, he is whole, he is mature. Fully developed for us is some of that language. You might translate it like this, be whole, therefore, as your heavenly father is whole. This maybe gives you a window into just how complicated it is to translate this 2,000-year-old document written by all sorts of people. Jesus spoke in Aramaic. The writers of the Gospels wrote in Greek, so everywhere they're making choices of what Greek word best captures the Aramaic word that Jesus is using. Matthew hears what Jesus says and uses teleos, perfect, whole, complete. Luke picks a different word that we translate like this. Be compassionate just as your heavenly father is compassionate. To us today, those sound like very different things, right? We're like complete, compassionate, are they the same? Perfect, compassionate, they seem even further apart. But there's this call between Matthew and Luke to this. Be whole as your heavenly father is whole. Be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. But I actually love that they have this slight dichotomy between them because of what we have on our wall outside of this room. The first reflects this, that the fact is that the way of Jesus is challenging, changes you, leads you to new places, new ways of acting. It teaches you to become a better person, a whole person, a mature, complete person. It makes you and I more like the God who founded that way. And yet at the same time, there's a heartbeat to Jesus. There's compassion in everything that he does. His way of being in the world around him is to treat those on the margins like they are in the center. He moves the margins, the center to the margins. It's so much like we just talked about with the food bank. This is living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. The reason for that phrase is simply that, that that it seems, and perhaps you've seen this, a way to try and copy Jesus' actions, 
to try and do some of the things he taught in a way that isn't compassionate, in a way that isn't his heartbeat. There's a way to try and live like Jesus, it seems, that doesn't look like Jesus at all. And perhaps you've seen it. And perhaps you ended up here at South because you've seen it other places. This phrase links the two parts, Matthew chapter five and Matthew chapter six. And and depending on which word you read, it determines whether you see it more connected to, the, to where we're going or to where we've been. And so then this is where Jesus takes us after that. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus moves us from all of these different ideas, these actions, these, these, these commands in Torah, which he's kind of not changed, but he's taken us back to the original heartbeat of. And now he's gonna to talk to us about three spiritual practices. Now this is, is fascinating, is important, because generally in the day, Judaism had three practices that they decided were really important. One was Sabbath. Make sure you do nothing on the Sabbath. Another one was tithing, and another one was ceremonial law. And Jesus picks three other things that he's going to talk to us about. He's going to talk about giving to the poor. He's going to talk about prayer. And he's going to talk about fasting. Since the moment Jesus said this, every major religion in the world has included these three things as central to who they are. Giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting, but as it's Jesus, as you might expect when you remember the phrase living with the G- with, in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus, it, he's also going to talk about the way that you do it. It's not enough just to do it, it seems. There is a way to do it that is distinctly Jesus-like. Be careful not to practice your acts of righteousness. Your acts of generosity would be another way of translating that. In front of others, to be seen by them. This is not a show, as tempting as it might be to make it a show. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. This is challenging, right? It's not natural to be this way. And it's not natural to be this way in all sorts of different arenas of life. And I want to demonstrate some of that for just a moment. This is a newspaper, or a picture of a newspaper. It is the Dunn Daily Record. Dunn is a small town in South Carolina. It has a population of about 15,000 people. This newspaper has a readership of 16,000 people. Just as a quick survey how, a survey, how many of you read your local newspaper this week? Highlands Ranch people, how many of you read the Highlands Ranch Herald? We got one, Dave. You're keeping them going, man. <laughs> Those papers keep ending up on the street because of you. <laughs> Anybody else read their local paper? Couple of like half-hearted hands, like you're a little embarrassed about it and perhaps you should be. I don't know, I don't, I don't speak to that. The Dun Daily Record has an unusually high readership. It's read by almost every single person in the town and by people outside of the town. The reason for it is this. The founder, Hoover Adams, decided when he began, the thing that was going to make this local paper work was names, names, names. 
He was going to include as many distinctly local stories as he possibly could, and if he had a choice between a story that had 10 names from the local community and a compelling story that only had one name, he was going to pick the one with 10 names. Why? Because people read stuff with their name in it and with the names of people they know in it. The, the wonderful Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movies came with an unusual quirk in their extended edition. The credits, instead of being five minutes long, were 25 minutes long. Because in the credits, it included the name of every single person in the Lord of the Rings official fan club. You could see yourself in real time, like in the screen. You were part of the movie. It didn't finish with best boy or key grip or those weird roles on a movie set. It had you in it if you were part of the fan club. That was great if your name was Aronson, you only had to watch the first like scroll, but if your name was Zachary Zakowski, you had a lot of work to do <laughs> to get there. People love to see their names in writing. We love the prominence. We love to be seen as important. We love to be reconciled. It's just a human trait. Jesus addresses this throughout this trio of spiritual disciplines that he talks us through, the first one of which is giving. So when you give, that's where he goes first, when you share your money. And we already know, just based on what he said, that he's going to address a desire when we give to get some kind of credit for it. And I've experienced this personally. So some years ago, my wife and I had some friends in town and we decided to take a trip together. They were coming from out of town and so we decided, you know, I decided, perhaps, I don't remember if we talked about it, but I decided, you know, we're gonna make sure we pay for all the groceries while they're here. Whenever anyone had to go out for anything, I would give them my credit card and say, you know, yeah, go and buy what we need if you, if you wanna go and shop. And then we decided to take a couple of days skiing and so I booked us a chalet. Uh, mentally, chalet, that's not a very American term. Cabin, that's the term I'm looking for here. <laughs> We're not in the south of France. I, I booked us a cabin and, and decided, as I was contemplating, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pay for this cabin. And, and so, so I didn't buy it. I mean, it's not that great. I just rented it for a couple of days. But I thought, I'm going to cover the cost. Uh, and, and then I waited joyfully for the moment where somebody on the trip would say something like this. Oh, we need to figure out how we split the cost between us. Perhaps it'd be a text message, so I'd have it in writing. Perhaps it'd be like we were all in the same room. And, and then I, I was planning for this moment where I was gonna have this great glow, where someone said, oh, we've gotta figure out uh, how, how to split the cost. And I was gonna say, don't worry about it, guys. <laughs> it's taken care of. And I was gonna bask for a moment in like how successful and important I would feel and just how generous I would feel to, to these other people. Like it, it, would, it would be this moment that I would remember for the rest of my life. I'm sure none of you have ever done anything like this. You're just not those sort of people, much better people than I am. And then nobody mentioned it. It just never came up. <laughs> Apparently, they just assumed that that was what was gonna happen, and I was left with this sense that, oh man, like I gave, but it didn't mean anything. What's the point of giving if your name isn't up in lights for just a moment and you don't get that sense of satisfaction, that sense of, oh man, it's good to be here right now with you 
people. I paid for the cabin, I signed the check, and nobody ever thanked me for it. Nobody even mentioned it. It was just assumed and my great moment was gone. I know I'm not alone, even if you guys aren't included in this group. Because in terms of giving across the United States, when you calculate all the gifts, all the gifts to church, all of the, uh, the, sort of the grants that are offered, all of the different systems that are set up, of all of them, only 4.3% are anonymous. 95.7% of gifts have the name of the person on them. Sure, people give, they give to their alma maters, they give to their schools, they give to all of these different things, but, but they also want their name on the building. How much do I have to give to get my name on a building? How much do I have to do to get recognized in some way, my little plaque at the zoo, whatever that happens to be? Almost all giving is given with the person's name on it. And yet Jesus says, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. A couple of things to note in the language here that, that maybe are challenging for us. Jesus specifically uses the word when. He has no if to this statement. When you give to the needy. That, that's rooted in a couple of things that were very important to the Jewish people of that day and for a couple of thousand years before. In the law of Moses, the, the Torah, in a book called Deuteronomy, and if these names aren't familiar to you, that's okay, you'll catch up over time. In Deuteronomy 15 verse 11, there's this little phrase, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. In this room, because we try and keep South this particular way, there may be all sorts of opinions on what social safety nets look like, on how governments should deal with the poor, but it seems according to scripture, there can be no two opinions on how we as individuals are supposed to care for the poor amongst us. It was there, it was rooted in who they were. In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 17, 19, verse 17, it says, whoever cares for the poor lends to the Lord who will pay back the sum in full. This was just rooted in their culture. So much so that while there were tithes that were given to the religious organization of the day that cared for the Levites that allowed them to live, there was also another way of giving called alms. It was the only type of giving that specifically wasn't classed as giving to God, but as giving to people. When you walked into the temple, there would be a box. And if you had enough, if you had extra, if you were, had been blessed in the terms of the day, you would go and you would put money into the box. And if you didn't have enough, if you had a lack, you would go and you would take money out of the box. Some of the reaction might be, oh my goodness, like how did they know it went to the right place? They didn't. How, how do you know it was a good course? They didn't. How do you know someone didn't take it when they didn't really need it? They didn't know. The moment it was gone, it didn't belong to you. It now belonged to someone else. That was the system. I thought for a moment, what would it look like if I just grabbed a couple of boxes and just said, hey, if God's given you plenty, I'm gonna invite you and me to come and, and, and put money in the box. And, and if you need something, if there's a lack, come and take money out of the box. 
And then I realized nobody carries cash anymore, so it just wouldn't work. You'd be like, I'd love to, I just don't have anything. Do you have a QR code? I can take care of it that way. I couldn't figure out a way to take money out of anything with a QR code. I'm sure there must be one. This was part of their culture. They enabled the poor to take what they needed to be able to survive. So much so was this the law of the land and just the way of being that a Jewish writer later would codify the best ways to give, starting with the worst way all the way to the best way. Check out this for challenging. I read this this week. I'm like, oh, don't love this at all. Uh, it started with the lowest, giving begrudgingly and making the recipient embarrassed. Second, second lowest, cheerfully giving, but giving too little. Ouch. Three, giving cheerfully and adequately, but only after being asked. Four, giving before being asked. Five, giving when you do not know who is the individual benefiting, but the recipient knows your identity. Six, giving when you know who is the individual benefiting, but the recipient doesn't know your identity. Giving when neither the donor nor the recipient is aware of the other's identity. That was the heartbeat of this system, that you came and you put money in and you didn't know where it went. You didn't get to say, did it go to a good cause? Did they buy the wrong things with it? Did they use it for something that they didn't really need? To make matters worse, this is how challenging the culture of the day was. And again, this was another personal ouch moment for me. When you thought about your personal income, when you thought about your personal wealth as a first century Jewish person, to give less than 10% of your income to something was considered having an evil eye. Having an evil eye. If you're like, ouch as well, it's okay, I'm right there with you. I'm in that, like, ouch zone. That was like an evil eye. 20% was considered ideal. But there were laws to make sure that no one gave more than 20%. Because in that culture, that could easily tip you into what would be classed as poverty, and then you would need to take the money. This phrase, evil eye, actually gets picked up in modern culture. It gets used by Charles Dickens to talk about Ebenezer Scrooge. It says of Scrooge, even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him, and when they saw him coming on, would tug their owners into doorways and up courts, and then would wag their tails as though they said, no eye at all is better than an evil eye dark master. There was this culture that said, no, 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 if, if that's where you live, that, that's not the generosity of the God we worship. There's much in there that is challenging today, especially when we remember this culture had way less disposable income than you or I have today. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Now, there were no trumpets. This was not like a real thing. Nobody actually walked in with a shofar and had it blown every time they give. It's a, it's a, it's a, a metaphor. It's an analogy. Uh, but it's really saying don't, don't try to capture the praise. Why? Well, because that's the reward. It is a real reward. Had my friends said, oh, man, I can't believe you paid for the thing. Like, I'm so glad, so grateful. It would have been a reward. It would have felt good, and it would probably remind them of it all the time. I wouldn't really. But that's the reward. It's done. It's gone. Jesus says he has a better way, and it's this. But when you give to the needy, do not know 
what your le- right hand, left hand know, what your right hand is doing. Sometimes in scripture, they'll use the same phrase twice to emphasize it. You see the when you give to the needy, it's a double emphasis. It, it sticks with you after a while. And then this interesting phrase, do not, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's supposed to give us a picture of being as secretive as you possibly can. Why? Because that, it seems, is the kind of giving that God rewards, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. What is the nature of this reward? It doesn't say. It's pretty vague. Sometimes God's reward looks different than we would have it look. This is true in all sorts of different areas. If you've read the New Testament at all, think for a moment about the book of Acts. There's this moment where Stephen, a young man, talks about Jesus and becomes the first martyr. He's killed for his faith. Two chapters later, there's a story where a, a man shares his faith with a man traveling from one country to another. The man gets baptized and then we're told the spirit whisks him away. And I regularly have this imagination of Stephen being this guy that's like, that was his reward? Like, where was the whisking away thing when I was in trouble? The reward is real, but it looks different in so many different ways. It doesn't promise that if you give, you'll get more. It asks you to trust that your father knows what you need and that when you give, he sees. He sees. And you're asked to trust, too, that the reward is worth having. One of the challenges we have, I think, today, as 21st century people, is this. If you were to ask us honestly, we believe that the real game is played here. The real deal is earth right now, today. Build your resources, pull them together, make sure that you have enough, control them, make sure that you're secure. The eyes of scripture ask us to trust that the real game is not played here. That there's this eternal spatial thing going on and that's the thing that really matters. When you and I believe that the second thing is the real thing, well then the earthly resources matter far less. When we believe that this thing now is the real thing, how can you ever really let go of earthly resources? This is the thing I've come to believe about generosity. Generosity begins with a why. It's a delightful pun because it ends with a why. Huh? Huh? You get it? But it begins with a why. It's a literary joke for you. It begins with a why because you need to have a reason to do it. And the only why it seems that God will give us is or Jesus living in this world as God in human flesh will give us is do it because I asked you to. Do it because I promised you a reward. Trust me that the reward is worth it. Trust me that the earthly resources matter less than this eternal spatial thing. That's it. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. This is the way of Jesus. This is what he prescribes for us. This is how he says to live. In another place in Luke, he says this, given it will be given to you. What exactly? He does not say. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap for the measure you use it will be measured to you. 
it does seem that there is a principle that those that give generously receive much at many times. But be careful about that. I remember once hearing a story about a man who had joined the Prosperity Church, as it is known generally. He'd begun to give of his resources and had started to see resources come back to him. And he went to the pastor of the church and said, is there something more than this? Because if this is all there is, this is empty. It means nothing. The point that Jesus makes is not to give so that you get more finances in return. It's far different than that. It's give because it's a spiritual principle. Giving is a spiritual principle that transcends financial transactions. It is an expression of trust, gratitude, and obedience to God. Understand that when you give, you align yourself with God's heart for generosity. That's all he gives us as a why. This is who I am, copy me, be like me. But that's not enough. This is what I've learned anyway. Generosity begins with a why, but requires a plan. Around 30% of Americans would say today, I have a budget and I stick to it. It's hard, right? There's so many things going on. You, you, you maybe have a vague idea of what you want to spend, but it actually can get out of control pretty quick, unless we happen to have gathered all of the 30% here in this room. I'm going to assume that there's some people like me who struggle with this. I used to think that generosity was a thing I could just fall into. And then I started to realize, actually, no, I had to plan if I wanted to be generous. Here's a tip that I'm trying to live into into the future. Not always done a great job of it by any means. If you want margin for generosity, budget margin generously. Budget margin generously. How can you choose to be generous when everything's filled up? How can you choose to be generous when you're at capacity? Doesn't have to be lots, just has to be something. Same is true of time, right? If you've got no time to use that generously, how do you ever do it? If you've got no time to use your wisdom generously, how can you do it? No time to help generously, how can you do it? How you budget determines what you are able to do in a given moment. If you want to be generous, if I want to be a generous person, if I want to take up opportunities as they come my way, I can't do it in the moment unless I've planned space to be able to do it. Start by budgeting generosity. And if it's $10 a month, great. Pick it, find a way to give it. Following Jesus requires the why, but it needs a plan. And then finally, it needs one more thing. This is the last thing. Generosity begins with a why, but requires a plan and ends with an action. Ends with an action. Because the number of times I might say I've done the first two things and yet I didn't take action. Something held me back, perhaps something that just, it was an overthinking. Does this person really need it? Is this wise? Will they use it for the right thing? All of the things we talked about earlier. Perhaps laziness, perhaps I choose something else over it. Here's the wonderful thing about the principles that Jesus talks about here. This culture that I described for you, the idea that you get to give and someone who needs might get to take. You might have heard that and said, oh man, that sounds amazing. We should have something like that today. We do. It's called benevolence. We have this thing in the church that we don't budget for, 
You just get to give to it. I just get to give to it. It doesn't ever go to pay salaries. doesn't ever go to fix anything. doesn't ever go for, to anything other than meeting people's needs. One of the things I hear over and over again about this benevolence fund is this. People come and they say, you know, there's no churches out there that are doing this for people outside of their community. Why are you doing this? We have people come from all sorts of places. In the last 12 months, we have been able to help multiple single mothers stay in their apartments because of benevolence. We have been able to, we don't need to clap it. I mean, you can if you want, but we don't have to. It's not, that's not the point. We, we've been able to help a guy who's having seizures to move from an upstairs apartment to a downstairs apartment. We've been able to pay for moving trucks to help people move into spaces they can actually afford instead of spaces that are killing them. We've been able to fix brakes for cars for, for people who can't afford to fix them themselves. We've been able to do that because of a principle that goes back a couple of thousand years ago. If you have something spare, we put it in a box together and we give it to people that need it. That worked 2,000 years ago and it actually works today. And this is how simple this is, okay? I just wanted to show you this. Supposing you're driving down the street and you see a guy standing on the side of the road and you say something like, oh man, I don't know if I should give him any money. Don't know what he'd use it for. Could be not good, could be not helping. Really don't understand these things. You can simply go on your phone and say, this is the church app, this is South Fellowship. I've just put in $5 and I've gone to Next and I've picked Benevolence. This fund that doesn't get our general giving, if you're not general giving, we'd love you to do that too. And if this is your home, I'm gonna say you should. If you haven't yet, that's what we do together. That's who we are. It doesn't have to be loads, but you should. $5, hit Next confirm, just done it. There we go, thank you. I've actually just done what Jesus asked us to do. He said, when you see those that are needy, choose to be generous. You'll always have those people here with you. It's just that simple. If the culture there sounds great, it was great. It took care of those with the greatest need. And you get to do it too, and I get to do it too. And if you don't think South's benevolence is where you want to do it, find somewhere else. But live out the way of Jesus. Live out this principle that Jesus gave us. When you give to the needy. When you give to the needy. Realize I just broke his principle by showing you all. Um, (laughs) But I didn't think of that when I came up with the illustration. Generosity begins with a why, but requires a plan. It ends with an action. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Here's a beautiful final thing that the God of the universe might trust you with. You may have a why. You may come up with a plan. You may start with an action. And the God of the universe may in his grace to you say, I'm gonna ask more. I'm going to ask more. I'm going to invite you to participate in my kingdom to greater levels. Think about Aaron's story. It began with all of those things, with her time. It became more, and it became more, and it became more. Because we live a story where the God of the universe says, participate with me. You are part of this thing. Jesus, thank you for your gift to us. We get to play. 
We don't sit on the bench. We get to participate. We get to give to those that are needy because it's who you are. You give wastefully almost at times, it seems, to people like us. Thank you for your generosity. For those of us that are holding that money thing tightly, help us to release our hearts. Give them to you. Amen. If you've been touched by this ministry and you want that to spread to others, you might consider partnering with us financially. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. Thanks for listening and have a great rest of your day.